one, two, three. This is Buccaneers Total Access with head coach Todd Bowles. Hey, that's a hell of a job coming down here being a good football team. Three-step drop, throws to the end zone. Caught ball, touchdown Tampa Bay. Mike Evans reaches up with one hand and grabs it in. Brought to you by Advent Health. No matter what helps you feel whole, swimming, laughing, or finding peaceful moments in your day, Advent Health is here to support you with world-class expertise and whole-person care. Because feeling whole always begins at AdventHealth.com. Fire the cannons! Now your host, Bucks team reporter Casey Phillips and head coach Todd Bowles. Welcome into the Todd Bowles Show. Casey Phillips here with head coach Todd Bowles. I imagine you've coached and played a lot at this point, so you're probably kind of hard to surprise. Uh, but did this outcome surprise you? I think the start of the game surprised me. I thought we were maybe too hyped up and overhyped. Other than that, we didn't play well. You know, bottom line, we didn't play well. No excuses needed for a game to clinch the division. And we got to come back out next week and play better. Um, how about for you guys, just the feel going into it, did you feel like there was the right intensity, uh, knowing that especially you've been on this winning streak, and did it feel the same in terms of the way that they had had that playoff mentality for so many games? Great week of practice, great focus, understand what we had to do going into the game. Um, didn't make a few plays early, they got a good drive going and got a touchdown, couldn't get anything going offensively, penalties, shooting ourselves in the foot and turnovers, and Game kind of snowballed on us, but, you know, we've won four out of five. We're trying to win five out of six. I know that you talked about the starts of games that still to not have the opening drive touchdown at this point. Does it feel like a coincidence? Is there something specifically about opening drives that have been common denominators in your mind? Because I'm sure you guys have been looking at it and trying to assess what's gone on there. Execution execution it's a different guy every time we can execute at the same at a straight level we'll be fine and then i know uh for baker this is his first game this season with two interceptions he's been doing a really great job of protecting the football you know it was his first interception in four weeks he'd thrown 115 consecutive passes without an interception and you guys came in tied for the nfl's best turnover margin at plus 10. so what felt different in that game knowing that it was something that had been a bit of a strength well, they made plays. They made plays. We know we can't turn the ball over, obviously. Two interceptions and fumbles, three interceptions and a fumble, obviously, not going to make for good football. When you turn the ball over four times, every time we play the Saints, whoever wins the turnover battle wins the ball game. They got the turnover battle, they won the ball game. Uh, all right, so let's start. Can you take us through the interception that was uh, headed towards Palmer and what seemed to go wrong on that play? Ooh, uh, it was a bootleg. He got a rollout. I think he threw it off balance, had more air under it than he liked. Trey had to come back to it a little bit. Uh, he's trying to teach our receivers, if you can't catch it, make sure they don't catch it. The guy made a great play, you know. Made a great play. The ball came up a little bit short. And I know that uh, Baker was a little shaken up at the end of the game, so are there some of the ways that you guys try to make sure that he's going to be ready to go this next week or preparations for that? Yeah, he, he's a little bruised up, but he'll be fine on Sunday. Baker's tough. Uh, he treats himself right. He'll, he'll be in for treatment. He'll be ready to go Sunday. And I'm sure knowing that it's been, we've already seen him prove over and over again his toughness. And even in that game, we saw him go right back in there to try to attempt the other two-point conversion. So at this point, how nice is it at the end of the season where you know a lot of people are banged up to have seen that your quarterback can bring that kind of toughness? He's been like that all season, you know, and he wants to atone for the turnovers he made, and, you know, he'll have another chance on Sunday. 
And I know that he also tied his career high 27 passing touchdowns this season. What do you think has let him hit that mark this year in this system with this team? What is what has clicked so well between Baker and the Buccaneers to this point? I think him and Dave have a great communication system going. I think he's got some players around him with Mike and Rashard and Chris and Kay's done a great job and Palmer's done a great job. He's got a lot of guys around him. The system fit him very well. He's very comfortable when he came in and, you know, he's taking advantage of it. And I know that Mike ended up having, you know, 33 yard catch, a 35 yard catch that even when some things offensively weren't clicking as well, we still saw him make some of those big Mike Evans type plays that we're used to. Um, so take us through those two plays specifically and what seemed to work well. Oh, they doubled him constantly. He was able to wiggle, wiggle away on those two plays where they didn't double him right there and he made some plays. And then I know he passed Calvin Johnson for the sixth most receiving yards by a player through his first 10 seasons. Why does he seem to be able to produce big yardage in particular, no matter what else changes around him, whatever else is going on? Why is specifically yards a stat that we know he is so consistently good at? Competitor, big time competitor, has a huge catch radius. You know, he's 6'5", his catch radius spans almost like an NBA center, and he can go after the ball very, very meticulous about how he does things. And he, again, he's a great competitor. If it's anywhere close, he feels like the ball belongs to him. And then I know Godwin uh, didn't get a catch until towards the end of the third quarter. And I'm sure that part of this is just offense not really being able to stay on the field for very long. So there just aren't as many plays to go around. But what was uh, struggling early on to get him the ball? What were the Saints doing well or why he wasn't as big a part of the game plan until later in the game? They did a good job taking Mike and Chris out early. Uh, we couldn't get the run game going. Penalties piled up. Then we were turning it over. I think the first nine possessions, maybe four turnovers and five punts, that doesn't bode well when you're playing against a division opponent. Then I know he did get his second touchdown of the season, uh, which tied Jimmy Giles and passed Cam Brate for the second most touchdown catches in team history. Um, so tell us a little bit about that play and, and what you saw from that and then just his ability to, to continue to find the end zone. Well, Baker extended the play. Obviously, Chris kept running across the field, and it was a heck of a throw, heck of a catch. Um, they just continue to break records. Him and Mike continue. Yeah. Every week it seems like we're talking about one of these guys doing something and tied for something or breaking something. And the work ethic those those two guys have are, are unquestioned. The talent they have is unquestioned, and their passion for the game is unbelievable. And then I know the uh, two-point conversion uh, had to be a disappointment in the moment to feel like it had happened and have that chance and then get taken back. Um, so take us through uh, both attempts of what happened with Chris's and then what happened with the one that got intercepted. Well, the first one, the DB did a good job once Baker started scrambling, pushing him out of bounds, which is what you're supposed to do as a defensive back, and you can't be the first one to touch it when you come in. On the last one, uh, we had Chris in the backfield, tried to scoot him through. They had that covered, so Baker just threw a last attempt. There was nobody else really for that route right there. Just tried to throw it up and make something happen, and you know they made a play. And I know that uh, it felt like, you know, we'd seen the run game really establish its identity in these last few games during the win streak. Rashad ended up uh, 42 yards rushing. What did you see that didn't work quite as well in this game that had been going before in terms of just trying to assess where the run game stands at this point? They did a good job stunting and changed some things up that we didn't handle very well, which we got to get better at, obviously. But they did a good job. You got to take your hat off to them and we got to just put our hats down and get, get to work next week. It felt like on the drive that Rashad ended up fumbling, um, it was the drive that it felt like things started clicking. What did you see that 
was going well there before that moment happened. I mean, you know, you had a seven-yard catch for him and 10-yard pass to Palmer, 10 yards to Chase Edmonds. It just felt like that was the first drive that the momentum started. What seemed to be different that drive beforehand? We were getting positive plays. No penalties. We were getting positive plays. It was going forward. Momentum was picking up right there. I'm fortunate that it happened. Casey Phillips here with head coach Todd Bowles. Uh, I know that Rashad had been such a big part of the past game all season, that those, especially those dump-offs, the short yardage. We saw this game not quite as many targets for him, a little bit more towards Kate Otten. Uh, what were some of the decisions behind that and what the defense was giving you guys? They did a good job taking them away. You know, They would never let them sit out there for a check down so we couldn't get them the football. So credit them for doing a good job making, making us aware of everything that they were trying to do. And we tried to shake him open a few times, but he got on a run or two later on. Unfortunate that he fumbled. We just got to do a better job executing. It does feel like Chase Edmonds has had some of his better games lately this game. I know 56 yards from scrimmage. Uh, what are the things that he is being able to bring to this offense when maybe some other things aren't clicking as much as you'd like? He's very good at being a one-cut runner. He can see one little crease, and he can put his foot in the ground, and he can take off right now. He's a different type of slasher than Rashad is. He gives us energy and a change of pace when he goes in there and he plays fast. And then how about Trey Palmer's touchdown? Take us through that when it had been a little while since he'd had one of those this season. Well, Trey played fast yesterday. He played really fast yesterday. He got down there, he stuck his foot in the ground, and he kept going. Baker hit him in stride. He has a great vertical. He goes up to get the ball. I know that uh, his fumble was definitely a play he'd like to have back. And what did you see from that play in particular and then just kind of his potential in terms of some of these, a game like that where you see some rookie ups and downs? It was unfortunate because he really ran by the guy. You know, he had six points waiting on him. He couldn't keep his balance. And, he, you know, when you go down like that and the ball comes out, I think it happened to them last year when we played them down there when Olave caught one of those and he stumbled to the ground and the ball came out. Unfortunate would have got us another touchdown in a short amount of time and gave us a little more time to see if we can get one more in there. And then how about the offensive line performance in the game? What did you see from them knowing that the Saints have a pretty tough defensive front? I thought the pass, uh, the passing game, they were a little better than the run game. Running game, we couldn't move those guys and get, get anything going for the most part. We had some creases there. Uh, they had a few coverage sacks down the field. They had us covered pretty well, and Baker had nowhere to throw the ball. But for the most part, uh, we can be better. They came along. They didn't get killed, but we can be a lot better. And then how about uh, covering Juwan Johnson? He definitely had a season high for you know 90 yards, including a 32-yarder and a touchdown. What was the challenge in trying to prevent him? It's really tackling the short ones. It was, for the most part, tackling the short ones, then making a mistake on, it, on their deep balls. Uh, we got picked on one play. The communication has got to be better. Just overall communication in the secondary. And then uh, what happened on his touchdown specifically and then also the 14-play drive that kind of led to it to open the game? What did you see from the, from the defense there? I don't think we were clicking on all cylinders. I think we blew two or three early plays to get off the field that we didn't make. And they didn't kill us drive-wise. It was matriculating down the field two yards, three yards, and they get six for a first down there. Or a third and one or third and two they were falling for. And we had chances to get out of there. And communication wasn't there early and I don't think they were playing as fast as they were in the second half. Uh, I know that the Saints ended up 8 of 18 on third down. At one point they were 6 of 8. Uh, what did you see from the third down defense in particular? Mm -hmm. That's where the execution got. We had them before the sticks and they were falling to the sticks. We got to tackle better. We got to have better awareness. And we knew we were going to be without uh, Carlton Davis this week. Uh, what did you see from Zion and Jamel's games without Carlton in there? 
I thought Dean played very well. He had a heck of a ball game. He played physical in the run game. He was good in the pass game. Uh, Zion was good in the pass game for the most part. A few hiccups early that he had to clean up, but he had two or three plays you'd like to have back, but for the most part, he was okay. And uh, Levante, Yedian led in tackles. I feel like that's probably been the case for years and years and years of most games here with the Buccaneers. What did you see from his game? It's been the norm for him. He plays fast, he plays hard, he plays downhill, and he plays smart. And, uh, what do you think about specifically his ability to sniff out screens? I know I saw one early on to Olave, and it just feels like that's one of Levante's biggest strengths on defense. What are the skill sets that that takes, and, and what does that mean for the defense, knowing that he's so good in that area? He's instinctive. He understands situational football. When you show him something on film, like he's got it. He doesn't need to practice it. He's got it, and it clicks for him on game day, and you got to be a vet to be able to do that. And we saw that K.J. Britt rotating in for some snaps for Devin White. What are some of the things that K.J. has done that has really made you continue to want to find some ways to get him on the field some? K.J. comes downhill. Uh, big energy, big leader, big-time hitter, good football player, very good football player. We're going to keep playing him. So Yaya Diaby gets his 10th tackle for loss on the season, uh, tying in with teammate Kalija Kansi for the most by any rookie player this year. And um, I just feel like it's been incredible to watch the two of them battle back and forth with their tackles for loss and getting those stats and, and just watching the two, to have both of those guys on your defense. So tell me specifically what you saw from Yaya's game and then just what the two of them have been able to do in that area. He's strong. I mean, if you watch him in the run game, he's very strong. He, he's a step or two short of having two sacks yesterday. The ball got out of there, but he's confident now. He's playing with a lot of confidence. I think him and Kansas have a great friendly competition going and it's gonna be something to watch when them two grow as players. And how important can that be just in terms of rookie development to have multiple rookies playing at a high level and on you know same side of the ball to be able to help each other? I mean, I think I've seen them on the sideline even working some technique together. So how much can that impact just even the direction of their careers? It's huge. It develops trust. It, it develops a lot of trust and starting a friendship with rookies coming in and playing with them at the same time develops a lot of trust, a lot of camaraderie and a lot of toughness. You guys were without Shaq uh, due to injury, so tell me some of your decisions on who you had out there, when, and how you handled the outside linebacker rotation where it seemed like you got a lot more guys kind of involved and rotating in and out to try to make up for him instead of maybe asking just one guy to do it. Well, Coach Edwards usually handles that, but most of them play special teams, so it was important for us to rotate them all between Joe and Nelson and Cam and Watts. It was important, and Yaya as well. It's important to rotate them all and get them in there. Uh, some of them got back there, the ball came out. Some rushes we can do a little bit better from a gaming standpoint. I think uh, one of them, Watts, I think a third down he gave up. He was real close to making the play that we got to get that play made. But those guys play hard. And, you know, the ball, with the ball coming out, we like to get more sacks right there. But they controlled the game. They kind of ran the ball a little more and wouldn't let cars just open up and let us get after them. So we kind of had to make do. I know Marquise Watts got his first career sack. It may not be the traditional one that I'm sure he pictured as a kid in, in the NFL of getting to take a guy down. He just more ran car out of bounds. But, hey, it counts on the stat sheet. Um, for a guy like him, what have you seen of what made you want to get him on this roster, get him in the games, because he was just a, a tryout guy that one of the least conventional paths into the NFL to work your way onto a roster, onto the 53 and getting in on a game day. What are the things that he did that made you say, all right, yeah, we, we want to get this guy out there? His work ethic, you know, the looks he gives Tristan and Luke are unbelievable in practice. He's nonstop. He's a whirly bird. He runs around all the time. It's hard to get him flat-footed and stone him. He's gonna, you're going to get the maximum work out of him, and he's going to work the tackles to death.
And then I saw you also were rotating Ryan Neal and Kayvon Merriweather a little bit back there at safety. What are the things that each of them kind of bring and the decisions of when you've been using them and, and some of the things that you've seen out of them? Ryan's great in the box. You know, he's a very good box player, box safety slash linebacker like he did play when we played Carolina the last time. But in Merriweather, he's a, he's a tough hitter. We try to get some of our best tacklers out there at the same time. Sometimes they're out there at the same time, sometimes they're not. But Merriweather getting experience. He's a very heady ball player. He's probably a little bit better of an athlete than Ryan from a standpoint of being back there, but Ryan's probably better down low. But they both can tackle very well, so we try to make sure we have some good tacklers on the field. Looking ahead to this Panthers game, uh, what is it like when it comes down to this where it's a for-all-the-marbles game, that it's you win, you're in, you lose, you're out? What is that like as a coach? What is that like for the team in terms of just the, uh, the vibes, the feeling around the building, and the intensity when it comes to the preparation here? Well, we've known this for quite a few weeks now. We, we have very little margin for error. We've won four in a row. That made it great. We lost the one, which put us right back. We're still in the driver's seat, but at the same time, we got to play well. We got to show up. We got to execute. And, you know, we got to get in the dance. What are the biggest takeaways that you remember from the first matchup against the Panthers? Uh, they had a chance to go down and win it at the end. It's a very tough team. Anytime you play a division opponent, you throw the records out the window. Obviously, I think the quarterback got out the pocket some. Um, they hit Baker a couple times in the second half, I thought. Uh, we made some big plays, but I don't think we were consistent. We were lucky to come out of it with a win. we got to be more consistent for four quarters to beat him this time. And as of the time of us recording this, we know Bryce Young was a little banged up. I uh, don't know what his availability is going to be like. So a Bryce Young-led team, an Andy Dalton-led team, what are some of the big things that would be different with that or that in terms of how these matchups could look with your defense? Well, Andy's quicker on the trigger, obviously, in the pocket. He knows where to go with the ball via experience. But Bryce is a lot more elusive, uh, getting away from sacks and hey, getting away from sacks and getting away from rushers. And he can buy time with his feet where Andy can't do so as much. But at the same time, you trade some of the experience for some of the athleticism. But I don't think the offense will change. And looking at knowing it, it has been a couple wild weeks for them where they've got their high scoring game against the Packers. They've got shutout then against the Jaguars. That's a pretty yo-yo kind of a experience on offense for them. For you looking at that, what are the biggest things that you've noticed about their offense or are able to even take away from that as you study film when it's their highs and lows of the season? Well, we know they have playmakers and they have a huge offensive line. So defensively, we just got to play ball. I mean, we got to play ball defensively and try to hold them and limit them as much as we can. And offensively, you know, we got to block them up front. They got some pro bowlers up front and they're ball hawks in the secondary, but we got to block them up front to win this ball game. Yeah, what are the biggest things that stand out to you about them in the trenches offensively and defensively? Like I said, offensively, they're huge. They're huge led by their two tackles. They're very huge up front. They can move bodies. They can move piles. And defensively, between Brown and Burns, they got two Pro Bowl defensive guys out there that can get after the passer, and Frankie Lou does a heck of a job in the middle, and their corners are extremely fast, so we got to make sure we don't turn it over. We got to make sure we can open some holes, and we got to play four quarters. Yeah, what would be the one thing you would most want to see out of this team to know that they've bounced back the way that you wanted them to from this last loss? A fast start, and then continue that for four quarters. All right, well, Coach, thank you as always for your time. We really appreciate it, and good luck against the Panthers. Thank you. Coming up next on Buccaneers Total Access, we will have Director of Performance Science Dave Hamilton, brought to you by Advent Health. This is Buccaneers Radio. 
Buccaneers Total Access, brought to you by Advent Health. Pressure coming up the gut, and Prescott goes down. He's sacked for the first time of the game. Devin White, linebacker blitz. Now more with head coach Todd Bowles and Bucks team reporter Casey Phillips. Welcome back into Buccaneers Total Access. First half of the show we had head coach Todd Bowles, and now I am so excited to be joined by Director of Performance Science Dave Hamilton. Dave, thanks for being with us. Well, it's a pleasure as always. You know, every week we have an assistant coach of some sort come on here and everybody kind of knows, oh yeah, you know, DB's coach, quarterback coach, whatever. I feel like you probably have a job that, A, a lot of people don't even know exists on this team. And then they hear director of performance science and wouldn't really know what that meant. So it's really cool to get a chance to hear about something behind the scenes a lot of people don't even know happens. So let's just start with um, how did you get to this role? What's sort of your background and what leads you to this place? I started off myself. I played rugby semi-professionally back in the UK. I did my degree in sports science. And then from there, I did my master's in Edith Cowan in Australia, which is also in sports science. And then very early on, I was fortunate to get a role with the English Institute of Sport, which is basically the organization that helps prepare all the Olympic teams uh, in their endeavors towards podium or qualification to the Olympics. So I did that for Athens, up until Athens, 2004. And then I was over in the Middle East as a head strength conditioning coach for Aspire Academy, which is kind of a national academy where they try and get young talent and then very quickly help them get to the pinnacle of their careers through uh, like a long-term athlete development program kind of philosophy. So I did that and then came back and I was the head of physical preparation for the Great Britain hockey team. Um, We were then the first Great Britain team to medal in 20 years, like actual team sport. That was quite an achievement, I think, with historically what had happened with that team. And then that was for a home, home Olympics in London 2012. After that, the USA team reached out to me, um, and I took a role as director of performance science for the USA Olympic team. Went to Rio. After Rio, ended up in Penn State. Uh, worked with their football program, but the role was predominantly overseeing all 31 teams at Penn State and with the remit of trying to implement that Olympic model within the collegiate system. So challenging best practice, working with medical, strength conditioning, nutrition, um, to really kind of refine our approaches and think about how we can best serve the student athlete. In 2019, I was fortunate to get approached about a potential position here, which I then applied for and then subsequently got. And I've been here for the last five seasons now. That's incredible. I I have to imagine also, is there... Are you considered a traitor now that you've gone to the other football, being from uh, England, that, that, that we're the, the other football? Maybe if people knew, but people don't really know me, so it's not really affecting anyone, <laughs> yeah. I don't think. Yeah. I imagine also the Ted Lasso references went up significantly yeah. in the last few years. It's a great show. Yeah. I really like the way they did that show, the way they kind of take that American humor with the British humor. Like, yeah. I think that's why it's so successful. That's great. I love it. So... For you, now that we know the kind of the background of how you got here, what do you feel like the role, if you were to explain to someone, okay, what does this role include here? What all do you touch? What all are you involved with? And and what does your sort of day-to-day look like? Yeah, when I first started the position, it was a new department. So the owners and the GM kind of had this vision of setting up this performance science or sports science department. And really it's a case of trying to work with all the performance staff from nutrition, strength conditioning, medical as well as the coaches to basically remove subjectivity from some of our performance decisions. So rather than it being that kind of subjective thought and process, that any data or metrics we can collect that help define or make better decisions. 
So with the medical world um, and the overall picture, it's a case of how do we reduce injuries. So to do that, we do a lot of profiling very early on in the year with medical and strength conditioning to identify which athletes potentially are at injury risk, and we'll use some diagnostics, strength diagnostics, um, to establish if there's anything that we can fix. Another area is working with strength conditioning to really understand what are the physical qualities that make a player effective on the field. So every position has different physical demands. And so trying to deconstruct those demands a little bit can help us prioritize certain training stimuluses out season, in season to help them be successful on the field. And then the big sports science piece where you have more interaction with the coaches is around kind of management, helping the athletes arrive on game day ready to perform. So understanding player load, understanding how the players respond to that load, and really kind of taking into account that every individual responds to a stimulus in a different way. So every kind of physiolo physiological poke will result in some kind of physiological response, but the individual responds slightly differently. So what we do is we try and develop uh, markers within our program, whether it's wellness, whether it's looking at neuromuscular fatigue, whether it's looking at biomarkers within the athlete to see how they're responding to all these loads. And then if you think of the season itself, we've then got to have conversations with coaches and positional coaches to try and manage our athletes so that, again, they, they're kind of ready to perform. Sometimes we want to work our athletes super hard, but as a result of that work, there's a consequence to that. So there's, it's that fine line of balance. So very early on in the year, our focus is on the individual. We look at the way we're programming, and it's, it's a conversation about Casey and her reps and how we can modify her rather than the team as a whole. As you get more towards the middle of the season, you start to shift more towards positional groups. This position group is getting a little bit more work than the others for whatever reason. Wide receivers O-line would be a good example of a group that ten, tends to get a little bit more work with the way that we practice. And so we look at that as a bigger group to try and modify if necessary. And as you get towards the end of the season, well now you have to go more from that kind of granular level of the individual to the bigger picture of the team. We've all gone through 12 weeks of a season, those physical stresses are starting to accumulate. So now we'll start to make more grander decisions around how the team perhaps needs to be managed towards the end with our practice load and yeah. travel and the rest that comes into it. That's so interesting. We're talking to Director of Performance Science, Dave Hamilton. Um, so obviously so much of your job is about the measurements, right? It's everything you're talking about to make those decisions is about measuring all of it. So what are some of the biggest main tools that you use to kind of get all the data points that you would need to make those decisions? Yes, yeah, some are cognitive and some are kind of more somatic. So by that I mean some we take their, their, their thoughts, their own personal thoughts through a, a subjective questionnaire and some of it is more physical markets that will look to get a gauge of how they're responding. So we obviously have wearable devices that they'll use in practice and during the game. Those devices are used to tell us how far someone will move, how fast they do it. It's called time motion analysis. So by default, if I know where you are at a certain time, I can then calculate how fast you ran, how many times you accelerate or decelerate, some of the explosive actions we can look at through G-forces. That's all within the unit they wear during practice. And then we'll take some, like I say, a questionnaire, which is just really simply looking at basically wellness. So how well are you sleeping? How much muscle soreness do you have? What's your energy level? We'll then get them on a force plate and we'll use some other strength diagnostic tools. Uh, we're basically gauging how are the muscles now responding to all this work that we do. Are the power qualities declining? Uh, is there an imbalance left leg to right leg? Um, so we're trying to get as many insights as we can as early as we can so we can be proactive in program change rather than 
oh damn, something happened and now we reacted. And then on top of that, we also do some biomarkers. So we're looking at things within the system that can tell us whether there's stress, systemic inflammation, etc. And again, we'll use that to kind of build a picture of how these athletes are responding over time. And they're probably the, the main ones that come to mind. A lot of it is about understanding there's a bandwidth with these athletes. So you could do a lot more with regards to this field and how invasive you want to be. But you're also trying to take into account that they don't have to do it. And so you're creating buy-in. So we do as much as we can to make it as minimally invasive. We give them as much feedback as we can at the end of the week. So they get a report at the end of the week and they absolutely then understand we took these metrics, here's how your metrics are trending, we educate them then, and which ultimately then helps them want to do more for us. Yeah, and I imagine, yeah, you, the buy-in is so important, and I have a feeling that I know some of the things they'd be most interested in. I'm going to guess it's, oh, certain things of who was maybe stronger seeming than the other, or who was faster. Am I, am I accurate in this, that the, the best way to get some buy-in is to create a, a bit of a competition out yeah, here? Yeah, they're, they're always interested in who was the fastest. Yep. You know, who does the most work, play counts, etc. Anything that feeds the ego, yeah. so to speak. Um, and then what we'll do for a bit of fun is we'll, at the end of every practice, we'll report the fastest five skill guys, the fastest five big skills. A lot of what we want to do from an injury prevention standpoint is try and make sure these guys sustain intensity within their workout. And speed is an area where you're at most threat for injury. So by using those uh, little posts at the end of a practice, we're promoting guys to get at least some exposure to max velocity within the week. That's interesting. I imagine also there's such a um, interesting line about the idea of that of a lot of people think like, oh, you don't want to overwork people um, because that's where injury could come in. But you're essentially saying you have to get at least a certain amount in or it actually is the can have the opposite effect. And then in Tampa, of course, we talk about the heat all the time, right? And there's a debate of, oh, are, P, are we at an advantage because we're used to the heat or is it draining us? So what are kind of your views on on some of that, especially of do you view it as we're used to it? Do you view it as it's draining us that what are the the ways you guys try to work with the heat idea here yeah i mean that's a great question and it's definitely a double-edged sword is there a physiological advantage to training in heat yeah absolutely we know that increases blood plasma we know that has an effect on pain tolerance levels sweat rates and so when teams come to play us we've already we already have these physiological adaptations and therefore playing in heat we are more uh, prepared to work at a higher intensity on the flip side, there is what I would term sun tax. So when you practice outside early on in the season and preseason, the physiological load of that session is 20% higher just because of the exposure to the sun and what it's doing to your homeostasis, your body, your, your body's ability to stay within normal levels. We're constantly fighting against that heat stress. And so over time, we are constantly working 20% more than other teams. But as a result of that heat, we're also potentially working at 15% percent less intensity because mm. it's hard to work out hard with obviously that level of uh, heat exposure so that's a double-edged sword so when people come to us and play a one o'clock game absolutely we're in a great position to outwork them uh, recover more effectively but the downside is we practice outside a lot and it comes at a lot of physical stress that we're trying to then have to manage putting recovery interventions early in the season to help us get ready for the game. The best case scenario for us, again, thinking of the double-edged sword, is come the end of the season, mid to end, we are outside in 65, 70 degrees, and other teams are in snow, indoors, and now we're in the best place to kind of practice and train um, and take advantage of good conditions. 
All right. Well, we are going to have more with Director of Performance Science Dave Hamilton after this quick break here on Buccaneers Total Access, brought to you by Advent Health. This is Buccaneers Radio. You're listening to Buccaneers Total Access with head coach Todd Bowles and Bucks team reporter Casey Phillips. Brought to you by Advent Health. Welcome back into Buccaneers Total Access. We are talking to Director of Performance Science Dave Hamilton. So I know you mentioned the idea of especially some of the travel implications, too. I know that's an area that you know, it gets a lot of attention in your department, especially when, you know, in recent years we have played in London and played in Germany and then you get some West Coast games as well. So there's always debates of do you go early and get acclimated? Do you go late? And then adjusting to time zones and just travel in general and its taxes on the body. So what are some of the things that you guys do, whether it's just a normal trip, West Coast trip, extremely long trip overseas? What are some of the things that you guys try to do to mitigate the you know physical toll that can take? We, we try and take into account all the variables. So you're looking at when is kickoff. That's going to help you determine how much time you want to spend in a location. Whether it's West Coast or East Coast, you're then looking at the flight and the challenges that come with the flight. So we look at the flight in a way of how do we manage some of the downsides of a flight, which is it's going to promote dehydration, it's going to promote blood occlusion, uh, which means that you're going to cut, reduce blood flow by this, this, the sitting nature of obviously the plane and what, you, what you're doing. So then we're looking at how can we create a situation to improve blood flow. We'll use some devices called Firefly, some compression. All these things are then mitigating some of the impacts of that flight. When we go to the West Coast, we know that there's a time zone change. What we know physiologically is you have your circadian and your diurnal rhythm. So these, this is the milieu of hormones that kind of fluctuate in your body throughout a day. There's a reason the Olympic 100 meter final is run at four to eight o'clock at night because that's when your body's in best shape to set a world record from a nervous system standpoint. So we know with these hormones, there's optimal times in which you can perform. So going to a West Coast game and looking at a four o'clock kickoff, we've got to try and manage ourselves to put ourselves in the best position to perform. The other thing to weigh up is when you go West Coast, you could go a day earlier on a Friday or you could go on a Saturday. Um, but the implications of going on a Friday is now you're probably going to start to adjust that time zone a little bit, which means that when you fly back post-game, you've now got it on the back end as well. Um, versus actually what we know is generally on the first night that you arrive, you're going to sleep really well just by default of your, your system being tired. Um, but if you arrive two days before, there's a potential the first night is good night's sleep and the second night pre-game could be a bad night's sleep just because of how those, your body's then going to readjust. We also know that one bad night's sleep does not impact performance. Hmm. Two does, one, one not so much. So really you're trying to manage the logistics with everyone else in the building with regards to what they want to attain or achieve. But the best, in my mind, the best scenario is try and arrive as early as you can, but not days before. So try and arrive early Saturday so you have an extended time there with one night's sleep to then perform. That's so interesting. And I know that also, you know, as we talked about heat and the way that it affects the body, I know there are ways that, you know, we talked about it can be a positive, it can be a negative, but there are ways you guys do try to help them out and make it the same way with the travel. You have all these devices to try to make it better. What are some of the things that you do, especially during, say, training camp when it's a lot of days, a lot of tough practices all right in a row, the hottest time of the year? What are some of the things that you guys do to try to help the guys maintain a, a, a healthy and safe body temperature? Yeah, so we, we have a couple of modalities that we'll use. I think fundamentally it's important to understand that we do want the guys to have heat exposure. And typically the rule of thumb and what the research shows is 40 minutes of heat exposure is enough to create the physiological adaptations. And having them 14 to 16 days within a month is enough 
to kind of see extended or beneficial changes. So once you've got that outside of that, now we want to try and, again, mitigate too much heat stress at SunTex. And so we'll use cooling benches on the side of the field. Uh, we'll use skull caps with, you know, uh, cold skull caps. We'll use neck cooling pads. We will use handheld devices that are called AVA tubes. Uh, AVA stands for arteriovenous anastomosis, which is a cooling system your body naturally has. So within your palms and on your cheeks is where you're, you can rapidly affect core temperature. Um, so we'll get the guys to kind of hold that for a minute, two minutes. Um, and it's all just kind of small devices, cold sponges on the back of the neck, like anything that can help try and drop that core temperature. Um, and then sometimes it's just the perceptual impact of something cold is going to make you feel cooler, even if perhaps your core temperature isn't. We've got to be careful with that because it's also dangerous when, if you think about me putting something cold on a thermostat, the thermostat thinks that the room is cold, but mm. in reality the room is still warm. Mm. Um, that's kind of the same with your body as well. So you can make yourself feel like it's cold, but now I overheat. Mm. So it's being very kind of targeted with how we use some of these cooling devices. We're talking to Director of Performance Science, Dave Hamilton. And of course, we do have an amazing indoor facility as well. How do you guys make the decision of how often to practice in there? What makes you decide, you know, that versus outside? And then even the, I think... I was surprised when the first time I went into the indoor and I'm expecting to get like hit with AC because you're walking inside mm -hmm. and that is not the case. So the decision you guys make on what the temperature is in the indoor and when and how often for the, you know, the guys to go in there. Yeah, it's, I mean, obviously it all comes down to Coach Bowles and how he wants to manage the team with regards to these insights. I kind of see us as we read the news, we give him the insights and what's, what are challenges, how the team are responding to all of it. Ultimately, he will make a decision on when and where we kind of take the modalities to a point where he's comfortable. Um, going indoor does change the dynamic a little bit. Um, if we're playing outside, we're gonna wanna stay outside as much as we can. But there's absolutely gonna be times where thunder is rolling in and it kind of forces our hands, in which case we'll be indoors. But the, for, for the most part, it's, it's coming down, understanding that equation of how much work can we tolerate outside, three practices on the bounce, four practices on the bounce in preseason. And when does it make sense to make one of those indoors? So now we're getting our work done, but we're just alleviating some of that unnecessary stress. So typically what we will do in conversations with coach is try and tactically periodize when we might go indoors um, to alleviate some of that load in preseason. You mentioned just even talking with him, other coaches, other people on the staff, a huge part of your role is working with so many different people to kind of have everybody on the same page. How about, let's start with maybe the training and medical staff. What are the ways that you guys tend to work together and try to communicate about things? Yeah, so a lot of that is based on injury prevention and then obviously return to play. So we'll have a lot of kind of diagnostic tools that we can use to help mark how athletes are responding or recovering from an injury. And we use those same tools occasionally to try and, like I said at the beginning, kind of profile an athlete and identify if they're at risk of injury. And then from there, we're working as a team to modify a program to remove all those threats and improve strength or whatever kind of qualities we need to adapt within the athlete. We're there at the beck and call of the trainers to kind of help whenever they need internal external rotation of a shoulder that was sublux at the weekend and now we're two weeks in and we want to see how it compares to the other arm. Anything with an anchor where we want to get a test of soleus or, or gastroc strength and compare left to right. So we can kind of be very bespoke with how we do the diagnostic tool and kind of use the devices we have to get very specific 
measurements for them as we work through a rehab program. And then how about the strength staff and, and weight room staff? What are some of the ways that you guys work together? And then even how you know your diagnostics can influence what they do, but then even seeing what people are doing in the weight room, influencing what you guys are learning. Yeah, we all... It, we all work very close, kind of ultimately at the cold face with the athlete, making sure we create the best program for them. So with, met, with um, strength conditioning, we're really looking at how much work athletes have done in the week, how much game time they got, and then for that following week, what are the stimuli that they're going to be most receptive to, and what is a stimulus or stimuli that's going to be a challenge to them. And, and then from there, we'll work as a team to either try and reduce some of the work in the weight room, have a conversation as a staff with regards to coaches to try and modify. Uh, we do a lot of our jumps in the weight room, so we're looking at neuromuscular fatigue. We also do a lot of other kind of velocity-based training and strength conditioning staff will do where we'll take those metrics and we'll try and work together to understand, again, how all these athletes are responding throughout a season to work. Are they showing signs of fatigue? Are they showing signs of development? Um, and it's just a case of working together to kind of yeah. manage the group in the best way we can. Mm -hmm. And how about the, um, I know there's also an entire nutrition staff that works on that end of things. Is that a group that you're also working with and that you guys are collaborating on things? Yeah, for sure. We have, um, we have DEXAs here. We do body weights every week. So we're really, again, we're working as a team to see how these guys are responding. Like, are they gaining weight? Are they losing weight? What's their pre and post weights after practice in the heat? because we want to make sure working with them that we're identifying guys that have high sweat rates and that we can obviously then make sure that they get the appropriate electrolytes and, and fluids in. It's a case, as always, of being a performance team and just working together to understand bigger picture, helicopter view of where the team is at and where we need to kind of put in place little interventions to correct challenges that we see every week, whether it is excessive amount of time outside in heat. Yeah. Or the, you know, the demands of travel going like you identified to Europe and how we're going to manage that situation. All right. We have one more segment coming up here on Buccaneers Total Access with Director of Performance Science, Dave Hamilton, brought to you by Advent Health. This is Buccaneers Radio. Buccaneers Total Access with head coach Todd Bowles now continues, brought to you by Advent Health. Welcome back into Buccaneers Total Access. I am joined by Director of Performance Science, Dave Hamilton. You mentioned a little bit about monitoring the individual versus position groups versus the team overall. How is it different or similar between maybe individuals or position groups that are so different? Like I'm picturing Devin Tompkins and Vita Vea. And like for you, is it the same thing what you do with, with guys like that? Or do you approach things differently for guys that have very different builds on the team? Yeah, you have to kind of approach it different. So to take those two examples, you've got a player that is going to do a lot of high-speed work cover a lot of high-speed distance with special team roles and... Um, Obviously, you're talking about Vita, you know. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> on the offense. Um, and then you've got Vita mm -hmm. on the defense who has to overcome a lot of absolute force, like mm -hmm. total force, over shorter distance. Involves a lot of what we would call rate of force development, the ability to impart force very quickly. And so those demands are different. And so the way you train them, therefore, should reflect that. But most importantly, probably with where we're at in the NFL, at kind of the, the tip of the spear, is how well are we recovering them from those physical stresses? So what we know is when you do a lot of high-speed works, your central nervous system may get exposed to fatigue. Versus when you do a lot of contact and high force, you may get more muscle damage, edema, um, etc. So those two systems need to be recovered in slightly different ways. So typically with central nervous system, 
or nervous system work, we're going to look to use more contrast, hot and cold, because that system responds well to that. And then for more kind of inflammatory impact, contact, we're going to use more ice-based modalities. So understanding how the game stress is, we then look at the back end and the recovery strategies to help those systems recover as effectively as we can. So I know because of just privacy stuff, I'm not going to ask you to tell me any individual players specific numbers on things, but are there numbers you remember that would maybe be interesting for fans to hear of without attaching it to any kind of play or anything of weight lost during a practice or top speed reached or anything in terms of all the data you get that there were times that you were like, man, that's pretty crazy or that fans would be surprised to hear maybe. Without context, I don't know if they'd be surprised here. I mean, these are phenomenal athletes that we're talking about. It's the cream of the crop, uh, cream of the crop, sorry. So their physical attributes and what they can do is always impressive, whether it's seeing how high they can jump on a force play with no arms, right? We, do, we typically do our jumps without using that, their arms and how much force and height they can generate, uh, whether it's the distances that they cover at high speed. So having worked with the rugby, field hockey, English football, Understanding the size of these players and how fast they move and with the level of frequency is impressive. Training in the heat and the amount of weight loss you would hear, like it wouldn't be unusual for some players to lose 12 to 14 pounds in fluid. To have players run above 20 miles per hour and weigh 250 pounds plus. All these things, just the numbers may not mean much, but with anyone who has a background in that area would be impressive. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, How about as you look at it, the way that this role is evolving, even has evolved since you've been here and the direction it's going, um, that we know just in general, everything about data, research, science, all of it is always progressing with this. And and this has become such a big part of the NFL where it didn't used to be maybe. What are the biggest ways that you've seen it grow and change and the direction you see it heading of how it can affect this game moving forward? Yeah, I think think like anything, it's, it's a small cog in a bigger machine. It's not the be-all and end-all. Ultimately, this is a people game. It's about making athletes feel valued. It's about creating a situation for longevity for them and trying to push performance to a place where you can create better outcomes more often. So how do I see it evolving? It's, It's like anything, it becomes more integrated. It's understanding your place within a building. It's helping others be successful at their job. And that's that's all it is. It's working as a team to ask good questions try and be inclusive and innovative in the way that we find those solutions. The evolution of it, it can be dangerous, like you become too dependent on data, and in reality, you remove the person from the situation. And there's far too too much context around the individuals and team culture and how they respond for each other to get hung up on data. So it, it can be dangerous. I think the best place is it evolves and it helps other people do their job well, and if it does that, then it's going to be successful. I think if it gets ahead of itself and thinks that it's the answer, then we're going to have some problems. We're talking to Director of Performance Science, Dave Hamilton. How about in the off-season when a lot of the guys aren't here? Um, how do you guys try to continue to monitor what guys are doing or how they come back after an off-season? And it's obviously, I'm sure, a lot easier for you to do your job when everyone's in the building every day here. So what does the off-season look like for trying to maintain an idea of what's going on? Yeah, I think that's probably a big cultural piece. There's not much you can do. You can't mandate that they come in. So if culturally you've created a situation where they like the service they are receiving and they're seeing improvements, then by default they're going to do their best to help perform. 
and they're going to be around the building. And I think as a group, we, we do pretty well making sure guys get back, um, but we're not forcing anybody's hand. It's a case of here's what we offer as a performance staff, and it's here if you want it. So even with the off-season, we're, we're not really not allowed to do any monitoring. So we, we don't get in the way of doing too much of that. Absolutely, you're on, you're on the money. Like We need to understand what they're doing so that when they come back for OTAs and other elements of the program, we have an insight into how they're going to respond to the work we want to put into them. But every time they get back in the building for some kind of mandated period, we'll do our diagnostics with them, we'll do as many assessments as we can to try and build a picture of where they are coming in at that, that phase of the year. And I've done you know a few videos with you and we've talked about all the different behind the scenes things that we can show everybody. And there have been a few things that you've ended up saying like, hey, we don't really want to talk about this or show this because there's a competitive advantage, which I thought was really interesting. So is that something you guys are thinking about a lot in terms of, I think people would probably just assume, oh, sports science, everybody's getting the same data, everybody's doing the same thing, but you guys are really trying to find ways to maybe either get data or find points of entry that are different than other teams to, to create part of the competitive advantage. Yeah, I think so. I think that's where, that's kind of what you pay for. It's why you hire people you hire, right? It's like, what what experiences can you bring um, to the table? What what approaches do you have to kind of look at a problem and find a solution? So yeah, I definitely think that we are doing a good job to address historical entrenched approaches to football. And I think we're trying to, you know, I like to think that the wheel is round. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel, but perhaps we're trying to make it a little bit smoother. Um, so it's really just little things that we can do to try and make a difference. So I think we're doing a pretty good job. And I think a big part, like I said, is the people you work with. And, you know, you can only get so much done if everybody's on the same page. Otherwise, if you're just pulling a rope in one direction, nobody else wants to come, it's, it's futile. So a big piece is the team that we have here and kind of working together for the betterment of the athlete, creating longevity for them and then trying to make us win more often. And then finally, do you have a moment that maybe is one of your favorites or where you saw the fruit of your work, guys buying in, something that you can remember of like, this is why we do what we do? I think a lot of it is just the more people come to your door to kind of ask a question. You know, so I definitely see a lot of people buying in, having real interest in the metrics that we look at. Another thing is because a lot of this is voluntary for the players, like the fact that we have almost 100% completion of, of all our task requirement um, is probably a reflection of the guys buying in a little bit. Um, it's more and more every year. So I would say, you know, were we 100% in year one? No. The reality is you've got some rookies who you can influence very early on. And then the next year you get another group of rookies and now you've got two years of rookies. And do you know what I mean? So by the time you get to five years, a vast majority of your team have come through and this is all they've known versus when we first got here, you're trying to convince people that it's going to be useful. So yeah, I think the evolution of it has kind of looked after itself. That's awesome. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us, for taking all of this time and, and for everything you guys do for the team. We really appreciate it and good luck the rest of the year. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. That's going to do it for us on Buccaneers Total Access brought to you by Advent Health. This is Buccaneers Radio.